Hello friends, uh, welcome again. It's been far too long since I last released anything. I've been very busy with my return to school, but I'm back and I'll be releasing two episodes this week. So lots of fun, get excited for that. Uh, this time I had the pleasure of chatting to the one, the only, Mr. Ben Osmo. Uh, you'd have heard his name mentioned a couple of times in episode one the Mad Max special, uh, as he was the recordist on Fury Road, and he won an Oscar for that. Uh, he's one of the most respected names in Australian sound. He's done half of George Miller's films, um, as well as Alien Covenant, Peter Rabbit, Strictly Boreham. He's done it all. He also has a, a side hustle in music. Uh, he's a very talented musician, and I'll drop one of his tracks at the end. I had the pleasure of working with him since this interview, actually, as a sound attachment on a feature. He's got an incredible work ethic, he's an absolute wealth of knowledge when it comes to production mixing, and it was a great time being on set with him. Anyway, uh, that's my time up. I'll let Ben take it away now. Hope you enjoy. Uh, yeah, from high school, I... I um went straight to an advertising agency and I started as a dispatch clerk. Mm. And um, I thought I was going to, my career was going to be in art and I was going to mm. study um, commercial art. And, mm. and I did a layout and design course that the, the uh, advertising agency put a lot of the cadets through. Mm. And um, they also promoted them in different areas and my first opportunity to advance from um, dispatch was um, a, f a little projection room and they would project commercials and little short films and screen tests and things like that on 16 mil mm. and so I learned how to run that and then they opened up a little video studio it was black and white Ampex one inch videotape and it was pretty cool but also we had a little sound system there as well and I recorded the sound and, and the pictures and we used to like um, have flip boards. So you had like two um, pedestals and you had um, maybe say 20 um, um, cardboard uh, storyboards put in there and we'd flip from one camera to the other and we'd switch and once we switched to camera B, we'd flip that board and the next one would be up and we'd, we'd switch to camera A. Right. And um, that was a way of doing the, the little pilot commercial to get an idea. And I would yeah. record the narration and um, um, sometimes I even, you know, wrote jingles and things because like, I, you know, played guitar when I was young uh, very badly. So maybe a, a year and a half doing that. Then I left and uh, got another job because I learned how to uh, be a projectionist. Uh, I got a job in a back room in a film production house called Kingcroft Productions and they made feature films, documentaries and commercials all in-house. And there were like uh, two or three directors. There were two editing rooms. I think Gillian Armstrong worked in one of the editing rooms mm. as an assistant mm. before starting the film school at the film school and um, there was I think at one staff cinematographer and there was also a, a film lab out the back it was just like two houses in one block and it was 
pretty small, but um, it was kind of like a, a microcosm of the film industry. And because I I, um, I got the job being in the back room lacing up films and um, audio. In those days, it was either on 16mm or, th- or 35 or 17 and a half sprocketed tape. And that um, it's pretty ancient now, but that, that was like the basis of how we laid tracks and cut tracks. And um, it was pretty crude when you look at it now, how sophisticated things have become, but it was a really good education. Mm. Um, and um, so after, uh, I think, a year and a half, the guy that was mixing at the front, um, and I also used to transfer quarter-inch tape to the sprocketed film so the editors could cut it up. And so I'd spend hours by myself in the studio transferring tapes and listening to sounds, you know, the the um, location sound from documentaries and from drama. And, and I started to get an ear for what was going on. And uh, did a year at uh, North Sydney TAFE. And uh, I failed because I, I didn't um, um, attend as many uh, structured lessons as there were, even though I passed all my exams. And I had a letter from my boss that at that stage I was actually mixing films. And because, as you probably know, when you're working in the film industry, you work all sorts of hours. So I couldn't attend half of the um, North Sydney TAFE classes. And in those days it was pretty strict. And so I had a letter from my boss saying, um, no, Ben's been working on films here. <laughs> Can you give him some sort of dispensation? And no. Nah. So I didn't do the second year. Yeah. And um, so I finished there at uh, Kingcroft and in 1975 I started at the ABC and um, I was there for 10 years. And after the 10 years then I taught at the film school. So that's the, the so you uh, didn't, paradox. So you didn't yeah. even like need a degree to teach? You just... Well, no, because I had 10 years' experience at, mm. at – um, the ABC and I became a, a senior sound recordist and uh, um, I worked on a lot of uh, drama productions. But through the years, I, you know, learned through news and current affairs and documentaries and uh, children's programs um, and then dramas, musicals, all that kind of stuff. And um, then I was on a committee to um, make assessments on other sound people within the ABC in Australia. So I had I was quite senior by the end of that. So I had like I guess fifteen years experience by that stage, but uh, no credentials as such. I think my CV is my credential now. Yeah. So you wanted to, you initially wanted to start in art. Yeah. But um, was there a kind of conscious moment when you realised you wanted to pursue sound instead? Yeah. It was just. It was pretty organic, I think, because, um, you know, my father um, worked as a, an executive, but at home he would he was a sculptor. So I guess that was in the back of my mind, that was that kind of thing that I would get into later. But um, I got more interested in music, really, and I started playing quite a few gigs at the time. But after a while at the ABC, the, the work... And I had a, a young family at that stage and the work um, was 
more important as far as, far as financially to um, make it that I couldn't make the gigs that I'd had booked. Um, in the end, I had to give up playing um, gigs. But the, the things turned around after quite a few years now. I can select what films I want to work on. And yeah. I, in fact, I hosted a, an open mic gig last night at Manly and it was, um, it was good fun. You've had the adjacent career in music. So how does that relate to your work in film? It also enhances your hearing, I think, and, and uh, your timing. Um, and also in the early days, uh, the music industry it was quite detached from the film industry. However, through the years, we, we started merging technologies. Like, as I said, when in, in film, traditionally it was procreted film that was um, synchronised with the picture, with a 35mm projector, and, um, and we had physical dubbers, and they were, you know, almost as high as this room. Probably each channel was was about, uh, you know, half a metre wide and maybe two and a half metres high. Physically, it took a lot of room to to um, synchronise all the tracks So, and they were very expensive. So a lot of studios would only have, say, half a dozen at the most tracks and they had, you know, when you're talking about looping now, well, we physically had loops on those, some of those machines, and we had little baskets that, um, with the glass on one side, that um, we'd made make a loop of of uh, sixteen mil or thirty five mil sprocketed sound, and we'd make you know put atmosphere tracks like crickets or uh, frogs or you know that kind of thing or uh, you know wind in trees or um, surf and and make a loop of, out of it physically, so it might be um, 10 metres long and then you, you know, um, you splice it together and lace it up and make sure that the actual cut is okay, you know. And then um, when it uh, comes to mixing, then those things are continuously uh, rolling. So to, to change a loop from one to another, you might have three or four loops then you can, you know, have the channels coming in. But then if you want another loop, you'd have to stop everything and go in the back room take that physically the loop out and place another one in. So it was quite time-consuming. At the same time, the music industry was starting with multi-track, you know, like four-track, quarter-inch things, and it became eight-track, quarter-inch, and then um, eight-track, half-inch, and, you know, then 24. So when I finished the film school, they'd already video... The video um, part of the ABC had started grabbing that kind of technology, where the film and in- the music industry already had it. And um, but at the same time, I was playing music, and I was going into studios and saying, "Hey, hang on, these guys have got these multi-track things, and they can do so much more than we can really quickly." And it was a matter of synchronizing the multi-track recorder to a, a sprocketed film. And then the technology changed that you had video and, uh, and now digital, and it's a lot easier to combine everything. But um, when I first started, um, I did a, like a six-month lecture at AFTRS in 1985 when I left the ABC. They had 
um, I think a, a 16 track uh, multi-track recorder there and they were um, the students were already onto it by that stage so yeah music and um, and film now have converged a lot where that um, I can get um, a pro tool session from um, a composer that um, we we need to play back that music for somebody to sing live or to mime to or whatever um, it's very quick uh, a pathway to uh, be able to to get them across. So is sound recording for film for you, is it like a creative endeavour or is it more technically minded? Uh, I can't say I'm technically minded really. It's only um, you design something because you need it, you know. It, it, I don't necessarily have to be temperate, um, particularly technical, but, yeah, I find it it's more of a creative process for me. Um, those tools are only just tools to be able to get that information to the editors to be able to start giving them beginnings of ideas of, of how to um, play with the sound. In my way of thinking, I'm always thinking of what the editor is going to do and what he may he or she may um, need for for the dialogue edit. Um, and then if I have time on a on a film, I'll I'll try and obviously the the room tones and and um, specific sound effects are crucial to get on set, but the the icing on the cake is to get you know really interesting atmospheres if we're in a um, a unique location that it, it'd be difficult to recreate. Um, or just give ideas of moods of, of what the area is like and then think of what physical problems we may have. For example, um, the last film, Peter Rabbit, we did um, two or three years ago, uh, was half of it was shot in Centennial Park and we had, we had uh, airplanes going over. So... Um, we had to work out what's the best way of, of uh, coming up, you know, fixing that problem. And because PJ Vorton is a really f- fantastic first AD and the director was insistent that we film there because he understood there was traffic and, and planes going over, you know, it's half the day could be, you know, every two minutes there's a flight going over directly over us. So, you know, uh, there's an app that you can actually see planes. It's called Flight 24. Uh, you can see them coming. So, uh, it, you know, I can obviously I can hear them coming before they see them, but because I can see it on the, on the app, I can, um, when we're ready to go to shoot, I'll say, okay, we're looking pretty good now, or hang on, PJ, there's, a, there's one coming. And in fact, he's got one too, and he can see it. And most people now, you know, oh no, here we go again. He, it, and sometimes you get, you know, two or three coming after each other. But the beauty of that was that the cast um, was was on the same um, page, and they didn't mind because a lot of it there was obviously scripted dialogue, but there was also a lot of comedic dialogue ad libbed. And um, they were happy to wait, even though we started rolling. 
we'd do, you know, half a page of dialogue or a page of dialogue and the plane would come over and we'd say, okay, keep rolling, keep rolling. And so we didn't have to stop things with putting more slates on. And I'd give the okay or PJ would say, how's that, Ben? And I said, yep, okay. And then we'd back up maybe one or two lines and then carry on for the rest of the scene, you know, and um, and that gave them the freedom of actually filming at Centennial Park. Otherwise, the whole thing would have had to have been looped, you know. It was... Um, it's it's not that often that you get such cooperation, but it was uh, it was terrific. So you, so during your time in like the ABC and advertising and that, you worked in sound post production, doing mixing and sound editing and all that. Right? Um, well, only when I really started. Okay. Yeah. So um, at uh, the production house before the ABC, yes, uh, I was in. You know, I learned how to um, sync rushes and. Um, um, you know, I edited, you know, helped edit the sound for some stuff, but mainly it was um, in the back room and then mixing. So then there was somebody that usually in those days it was the editor that would put the soundtrack together. And when it became to big feature films, then they would bring uh, an experienced mixer uh, to come in and mix it and perhaps a dialogue editor to to cut it. But my job w- there was to to mix the the general, say, documentaries and um, those kind of projects. And the editors, you know, with the lower budget things, the the picture editors would also do the sound edit. So um, did doing that work in post-production kind of inform what you needed to do as a sound recordist? Oh, absolutely. I'd I'd highly recommend it because then I... um, when I went to the ABC, again, I, I had a short stint in the transfer suite. Then I started on location, which I loved. And then I did possibly a year and a half mixed up within three month stints or things like that, mixing at the ABC. And I quickly found that I my aptitude was better suited for, for uh, location and I loved it location part of it particularly early on we're working on documentaries and traveling um to different parts of australia which was an eye-opener you know and an education so what about your personality made you more suited to a sound recordist what drew you to that as opposed to post in those days editing suites and mixing suites were very dark (laughs) and uh air-conditioned rooms and um uh, not much fun to be in for a long period of time. Um, and, uh, you know, I've been a surfer since, you know, I was age 12, 13, 14 or something, and I uh, always loved the outdoors. In fact, when I left the the film, the um, advertising agency, there was um, George Patterson's. I was a little bit disillusioned with advertising at that stage, but I've I've come around that, you know, it's a necessity in our society and um you know i was i guess 20 or something like that and um i went to to travel the world um so i had a backpack a guitar and uh and a two-man tent i got as far as yamba and north coast and um a place called angari and i camped there for uh, six months in a tent surfing every day and it was really fantastic because i saved a bit of money you know, working for a couple of years at George Patterson's. 
And um, I always loved the outdoors and, you know, the physicality of being with the elements, you know. So, yeah, for my personality, I loved it. But um, to go back to the experience of, even though it was in not as much experience as I've had on location, is to have an understanding of what happens in post-production is really crucial for a location recordist. Moving on to what most people would probably know you for, um, how did you get involved in Mad Max and at what point did you get onto it? Well, actually it goes back, I think it was 1986, 85 I left. It was only six months at the ABC, at um, the film school teaching. I was taking over for somebody that was going overseas. So I started, I did uh, some um, 60 Minutes and Beyond 2000. It was a science show and that was fantastic. We travelled the world in both of those shows. Um, but my love was drama and I started um, working on a couple of films and I, I did uh, Umbrella Woman and then High Tide with uh, Gillian Armstrong. And I think it was end of 86 or early 87, I was asked to do um, a telemovie for Kennedy Miller. And um, the name escapes me at the moment, but it it was um, a telemovie, a clean machine, I think it was called. And um, Ken Cameron was the director. and he, And I think that's the connection because... I'd worked on Umbrella Woman with Ken Cameron. He was the director and I'd worked with him at the ABC on a couple of telemovies there. So he would have possibly said, oh, I know a sound recordist. And so I went to Kennedy Miller and that was really, I didn't know at the time, that was a training ground for me, a test, I suppose, if it was good enough to work on a feature film that they were getting up, which was called Dead Calm. And that was 1987. And since then, I've basically worked for most of the Kennedy Miller films. Um, and that includes uh, Lorenzo's Oil in 1991. And then they came to me and they said, oh, we've got this film about a pig. And um, I think you'd like it, you know. And um, But they were breaking new technology in those days and... Um, that it was really great to work on that. It was Babe. And I, then I did the second Babe and the second Happy Feet. And then they said, in fact, I was working on a on a commercial or something with Jerry, who's my longtime boom operator, Jerry Nuchafora. And um, we bumped into George Miller and he said, come over here, I've got to show you something. And he had on three walls in in a big office at Kennedy Miller, he had all the storyboards for Fury Road and that was 10 years before they were going to make it. And he had it all all worked out in his head. Um, It was just timing-wise to get the technology right and they they said to me, um, you know, when when I was first approached about it, well, we're basically going to have a lot of people in the cabin of a semi-trailer and we're going to have um, the cameras either mounted on the semi-trailer or following it or leading it 
and there won't be any room for you. <laughs> work out how, you can, how can we get the sound? So in those days, it was it was um, head scratching material. I couldn't, you know, come to think of, you know, I knew that they would be inside a, a vehicle and it's all metal and how would I get reception and radio mics weren't all that fantastic in those days. And um, fortunately, it took 10 years for them to finally get it up and um, we're able to get the technology to uh, to get it happening. So that's how I met him. George Miller actually said something really interesting about you uh, in the interview I had with him. Um, do you know why he likes working with you? I think he likes working with me because I'm more of a filmmaker than a sound recordist. Yeah. I guess I'm I'm a sound recordist, <laughs> but I can understand when I read the script, I can understand the concept, what they're after. Yeah. And I can understand also that certain things are more important than others. And as much as I try to get the best sound that I can on location, um, it's to get the film done is the most crucial um, thing. Mm. And also supply the editors with as much options, as many options as possible. He told me the story about um, on Lorenzo's Oil when you figured out the way to make the child actor have a convincing seizure yeah. with um, by moving his head or something. That's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It was... It was um, and we had pretty crude... Um, video assist kind of screens and mine was like tiny little black and white thing and coming out of a film camera the actual image comes out of the viewfinder so it's like 10% of the quality of the image to start with Um, so you could basically see what's going on and they were struggling to get a movement of of kind of um, um, sort of like an epileptic quiver I guess you could describe it Um, and they had the camera on the top and there was no room anywhere to to assist the kid and we didn't want to frighten him either so um, they tried all sorts of things and I I just went sheepishly up to George and I said I think I've I, I can understand where you could possibly get the the um, thing happening and and I laid down underneath the table and um, it wasn't a, a sound take anyway so I laid underneath the table and grabbed the the boys the back of the boy's head and I was able to just shake it a little bit not too much to scare the kid but enough to because it was a close-up enough to be able to see that um, he was having a seizure and um, he's never forgotten that. <laughs> that was like 1991, you know. <laughs> so it's important to you to think about the overall filmmaking process yeah. and not just the sound? Yeah. I mean, I when I read a script, obviously I'm thinking of the story, but I'm also thinking of what challenges I've got coming up and how am I going to achieve what they want and not be in the way, mm. you know what I mean? To be able to do it, achieve what we want in a seamless kind of way. Mm. There's there's time that you're going to have to wait, you mm. know, like there's a plane going over or whatever. But 
and you know the, we wait when there's clouds going over and if you shoot everything in, in the sun and all of a sudden clouds going over your weight. So, you know, now people understand that, okay, we can just wait for a plane. But there's, cert, there's other things that if you can preempt them and, and do pre-production on it and think about how things are going to be achieved, you've basically done the film. And, and it's basically, in, in my way of thinking is, we achieve what we want after we've thought about it a long time before. So it gives me the time to think about the actual film and what the film's trying to say. Yeah, so that becomes like um, almost like muscle memory, recording sound, but also thinking about what's necessary. If I find, oh, this, there's a scratch on a radio mic on, on one take, but the boom's covering it and and it'll match, then I won't worry. And then the next take will be okay. But if if there's an inherent problem, then at the end of the take, I'll say, I'm sorry, there's a, there's a problem. We'll just need to to, uh, to fix it. But those things are unavoidable. But thinking of what the, the soundscape of the film might be to enhance the story, that kind of thing. So would you say that, Mad Max was kind of the most technically challenging film you've worked on? Um, I think Babe was pretty up there. We had, I think, seven or more. We had quite a few puppeteers. And the first one, there wasn't, the radio mics were pretty terrible. It was like 1994, I think. And so I had, you know, multi-cores going out to... Puppeteers, um, I had two-way um, program-fed radios to um, the director and first AD and puppeteers and um, animal trainers and all that kind of stuff. I was spinning in Pro Tools dialogue. We were doing on some characters or some animals. For example, the pig was really um, supposed to be, you know, a a slow-moving young baby babe. But in in reality, the little piglets, they just go really frenetic. So George worked out, we're going to shoot that at about 32 frames a second or maybe 36 frames a second. That's basically going to be the standard film speed. We're going to shoot that character. And so um, Julius Chan, who was the post-production sound guy, um, the late Julius he was a lovely guy. He would feed me Pro Tools sessions of varying uh, frame rate speeds. So in other words, they were either compressed or expanded. So if we were shooting at 36 frames per second, it's like, what is that? Uh, is that 24? Yeah, so that's 12 frames. That's half a speed, again, faster. So we played the fast version, so it would sync up with the the 36 frames. And then um, Roger Savage, who owns Sound Firm, came up with a software for video to be able to play back and, and simulate 36 frames. It was pretty crude, but it also had sound. So that's um, a lot better than a lot of the sound, the video systems that are now. You, know, you can play four cameras at the same time and all that kind of stuff but you can't play sound with them 
at multi-speed, which is weird. Um, but in those days, we could. And so then George would be able to see the, the audio, uh, see the picture at 36 frames and the audio at Unity. So it would match the, the picture and say, okay, now I've got that. It might have been a two-second shot. And that's how George works a lot of the times. So he can, in his mind, he's saying, "This is the bit that I want," and he would loop that thing. We get the um, video editor to to loop it, and he would hear the sound and say, "Okay, now we've got it." So then we'd move on to the next next uh, shot. So we had to come up with ideas for how to achieve that and be able to to simulate what what went on with multi with multi-speed shots and that was pretty well the first time I think a lot of the that I'm aware of in Australia anyway that um, that happened um, that was um, a lot of thought had gone into it from a lot of departments and it was terrific so that was a big challenge for me and because uh, I was spinning in Pro Tools dialogue from all the different characters and all that kind of stuff and um, puppeteers would bring in live, live ad libs. You know, it was quite funny at times too. Some stuff that you couldn't put on the film, but you know, it was uh, it was thrilling to be there. So yeah, that was that was a challenge. But yeah, Fury Road was massive. It was like um, inside the the cabin of of the um, hero war rig. There were seven or eight people a lot of the time and that's what we call a faraday cage it's like a, a metal cage a lot of studios would would um, still make make a faraday cage so <clears throat> it could be like um, chicken wire or, or wiring or things like that if it's metal it's a bit difficult for um, radio signals to go in but this is the other way around we wanted the radio signals to come out so we had to work out a way of, of doing that and um, this it's a long story but basically uh, um, we designed a system that we could get an aerial hidden inside the cabin with a lead that went um, an aerial lead that went into a bank of receivers and um, out of the receivers we multiplexed the outputs onto another bunch of transmitters and that the multiplexing was was one cable that we hid up on the antenna of of the antenna was actually hidden within the um the production design of the vehicle so you you know you could look at it but it's not there and um that way i could get reception 360 degrees outside the vehicle so that that was one of the crucial things and the other was recording the vehicle sounds on the run and then allocating somebody to record them on a special uh, uh, unit for a few weeks to record individually every every vehicle at different stages of uh, transit. And then there was the communication between George and PJ, the first AD, who was on the war rig traveling and George was in um, uh, in a vehicle that was chasing or following the, the hero vehicle and they needed to communicate. And obviously, obviously um, John Seal, the cinematographer, 
needed to hear and um, and uh, make comments as well. Um, they needed to hear the dialogue when there was dialogue, and if there was effects and there was just um, bang bang that kind of thing, they didn't necessarily need to hear the dialogue. So I had to do mix minuses and be able to get the director to to freely talk to the people as if they were, you know, this distance from me to you, even though it could have been 500 metres away, um, travelling at 80k in the desert of Namibia. So in a complex setup like that, they just tell you this is what we need to be able to do in order to make this scene work. You That's figure right. it out. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, basically, yeah. Um, but... Actually, there were there were more elements that happened because we thought that the travel was going to be like, and they hadn't actually seen all the locations that they ended up using, and they thought the the um, movement we we would be like an OB trucks, and they would be travelling um, in a line of sight area for say one and a half to two kilometres, which was achievable with what we'd come up with in Sydney. And um, they did tests with the video part, but not with sound because I wasn't around at the time. But uh, when we got there, they found these areas. They could do seven kilometres in in one go. Um, And I'd tested my rig and it just cut out on four kilometres. It Mm. couldn't. And it was, yeah. you know, it was a bit iffy. Um, so uh, we had to relocate into a little uh, Delica van, put all my gear in there, like four or five recorders, I think, and I don't know how many radio mic racks, and um, put the antennas on top of board racks outside. And uh, we had a, fortunately, we had an RF specialist that helped us put that together. And um, for the rest of the six months, I was in the back of this little Delica van, either chasing or um, or uh, leading <laughs> the war rigs and the um, the war parties. Um, it was it was thrilling, I have to say, but it was boring for a lot of the crew. That once we'd set up, we were off, and they couldn't follow. So I was one of maybe two or three vehicles. Like the stunt vehicle in George's was about it. They could follow. And obviously the camera vehicles that that were uh, either attached to um, what they call the edge arm, Russian arm. Um, what else do they call it? It's it's basically a four wheel drive vehicle with a remote uh, crane and remote head on it, so that you get four people inside. One's a precision driver, the other one's the crane operator, the other one's the camera operator, and there's a focus puller. That's it. And they sometimes squeeze George in. And um, then he would be able to talk from there as well to the actors. And there was one vehicle, um, I think it was 120 dB. It was really, really loud. And the the key actor, there was no dialogue at that stage and he was just driving and um, they couldn't hear anything. So I put a little earpiece in him and in in ear and um, in his helmet there was uh, his mask. I had a little... um, uh, DPA microphone, and so he was able to talk back to George, even though there wasn't any dialogue to record. And they were driving, 
maybe 60 or 80 k's on dirt road, followed by the um, edge arm. And the, the shot was that they would go from, from the wheels or something like that and then crane up and go to a close-up. And on the close-up, George wanted the actor to, to turn around. And so things like that were crucial to have sound to be able to communicate because I omitted to say because we, we went such distances and we're in, in valleys as well and canyons, uh, radio reception for their walkie-talkies failed. And so they really relied on my kind of internal um, walkie system that I devised, you know, with just normal radio mic and, and IFBs. And um, so they were able to do, you know, live cues and things like that, which were crucial and for safety as well. You, know. you had a pretty interesting job on Happy Feet, it seems like uh, recording the sound, the tap dancing yeah. and stuff like that. And they did, did they end up using that sound in yes. the film? It yes. wasn't just like sync sound, was it? Yeah, well, they added added to it and they also used it as triggers. You'd have to ask Wayne Pashley, who did a great job on it. He was the sound designer on it. But um, we multi-tracked 10 pairs, I think, Hang on, let me get this straight. First of all, we had the real, the the hero um, uh, dancer. And he happened to be here, and he was the guy that was in the, the first Happy Feet. I didn't do that one while I was away. He uh, coincided his engagement to do this with um, a perf- couple of performances at the Opera House with two other guys. And when George Miller saw them, and they thought, oh, this is cool. I might get the other guys to come in too. And so we did a session with him and I had um, a couple of mics on his uh, feet, on his shoes, and, uh, um, yeah, taped on to the um, inside, I think, and uh, one on the peak cap. When we did the, the story reel of, of the thing, I was there for about a few months uh, recording the um, the story reel, they'd already recorded some guides in a studio or wherever they could with the writers and whoever they had around to do the voices. A couple of experienced voiceover people, um, and then George had a run through with the dancers, the cast. And um, because of motion capture, they're all, they've all got caps on and they're all in the black suits with the dots. And when they did the, uh, the run-through, he saw that the performances of the actual dancers were really good because some of the dialogue wasn't quite working for when they'd pre-recorded it. So he said, look, why don't we just um, record you at the uh, motion capture stage as well as doing some stuff on the playback. There was music to dance to. There were story parts. And when we do the story parts as scripted, but then we might ad lib stuff. And so my task was to have the inputs of playback. We had a a Pro Tools engineer playing back Pro Tools. I had quite a large 
48 channel desk or something um, to input that. Then I had 10 characters, each one with a, a DPA microphone on his hat and um, one on each. I think three of them, three or four of them, I had them on their on their taps, but they they had in ears and they had one on their on their feet and a couple on the taps. So I can't remember how many tracks there were now, but essentially it was so as they could hear in in ear, they could hear the playback, they could hear George. He had a mic. He was you know uh, directing them from where he was because you couldn't talk. Um, you couldn't hear at that kind of distance. We did have speakers as well if we wanted to just blast out music for them to dance to. And then he, you know, in some instances or quite a few instances, it got them to actually do the dialogue because that was felt more natural and they could express slightly differently. And then all that sound was given back to the editors and they cut it up. Now, I left at that stage because um, it took a few months to, to get it all together. And then once they started, uh, re- then the Wayne Pashley went to the United States to record Robin Williams and a lot of the main cast of, of um, the thing, and then they cut it all up. Once they had that, then they called me back. And they had the actors doing the physical dancing or moving to the pre-recorded dialogue and I was I was brought in to record the tap dancing at that stage because that was all done so we had the first of all the lead dancer and we mic'd him up again with um, a DPA mic on each foot and one on his cap we had a, a stereo mic in front of him and two booms on either side. So we just followed him around. So we had three boom operators running around with him plus the ones. So that we did that and then his mates came along too. So there were three of them. We we uh, carried that through. Then they took those beats that they created and the uh, choreographer and the sound editor got together and they cut up loops or, or sections of them and worked out how they were going to do it. They got a composer in and all that kind of stuff. Then I came back and did the whole troupe, which was 10 plus uh, dancers, and we did them as a group. I think I had six or um, or so of them uh, mic'd up, and then the rest were just ancillary ones that we picked up with a stereo boom and um, two um, independent booms left and right. All that stuff in multi-track, you know, how many tracks there were, went into Pro Tools, the sound editor got them, and because it was it was on timber, then they were able to use part of that sound because it was a snappy kind of sound, but then use them also as triggers to ice picks and sounds of, of, of um, you know, a sharper sound that they mani- manipulated and by using that a trigger and in the mix they were using combination of the real footsteps and the and the triggered sounds and that's how they achieved it that's really cool yeah, yeah. it was uh it was good fun to do it's a privilege to be there really yeah uh, i really enjoyed it did you think about uh recording an emotional performance in the same way that you would with dialogue was it about capturing the 
Oh yeah, the because it, yeah, because particularly with the the dancers, it's mm. it's um, that's their body working, you know, and there were high dynamics happening, and there was subtleties and and really big stamps and that kind of thing. So yeah, it was great, you know. You could imagine it because the beauty of it was that the technology had been um, moving at a hundred miles an hour. Well, I should say kilometres an hour now, shouldn't I? Because what I was told, that the, the first Happy Feet that they did, it took them two or three days to see a, a sunk-up image of, you know, a loosely rendered sequence of dancing um, because they had to sync up the sound of the, um, of the dancing to the... Uh, it wasn't just video it it was motion capture so it was a lot of um, data in there and it took a long time to to uh, render the data and then sync up the sound with it moving forward i think it was three or four years five years later maybe well they could see that in five minutes you know that's the difference and you could see the live image of the people on the on the motion capture floor you could see them loosely rendered as penguins so when you're in real life looking forward you're seeing these people in suits jumping up and down and dancing and then you're seeing with a basic background penguins or different animals you know it was fantastic it was and and also um they, they had you know, mathematicians from China that had worked on um, the Gollum thing and um, uh, in New Zealand, and they'd come across to do it. And the people that remember, we were talking about the fusion between the music industry and and the film industry. Well, the game industry was was what started motion capture, and and some of the people, the, the guy, the floor manager for for the motion capture. Um, section of the film um, was um, was involved in gaming in in uh, the United States um, and so they brought that technology over and so the mathematicians would go and so how many al- what algorithms could we make to do you know make this motion happen and they would go off and crunch the numbers and come back try this you know <laughs> and it was happening right in front of us it was just amazing I really loved it you told me some interesting stuff about your work on Alien Covenant. The the basic premise was that they're in a spaceship, then there's a, two other vehicles that go, one states, stays outside of the um, stratosphere of the, of the planet that they go in, and then there's an, a whole, another vehicle that's gone, a landing vehicle that goes inside this um, planet. I remember what the planet was called. Um, okay, so you've got three different levels of communication, theoretically. So you've got the spaceship out in space, and there's a few people left there, and then there's the people in the middle, and they're on the on, in the Earth part. And um, there was about sixteen cast. They couldn't all be there at the same time at the beginning. In pre-production, we recorded. I think 10, 10 of them, and we had two actors 
um, voice actors that that did two or three different parts, and we went to uh, track down and um, multi-tracked um, a whole bunch of them, and a lot of scenes that was the communication, because we were off to uh, New Zealand to to film for three weeks uh, down at Milford Sound. And so the premise was that some, they'd landed and they'd gone up to the forest and some get lost and there's somebody else and, of course, there's aliens and things. And there were distances between the, where the actors were. So they all had communications. They had, in the art department we and props department, we worked out, we narrowed it down to two or three options of what Ridley Scott would prefer and he went with one. And we ordered these earpieces and um, we got um, a technical person at Lemac to um, make up special connectors to be able to integrate them into my IFBs. And so you could actually see their little earpieces sometimes, but it was within um, the context of the film. Um, then there were people on board the, the big spaceship that had headphones. Um, there was a... Uh, a synthetic person uh, um, that didn't require earpieces and that made it hard and we had to have hidden ones in for him. There were five cameras and they and there were scenes where one person was talking to the the vehicle that was up in the stratosphere and they were having trouble because the the ionosphere was radiating a lot of you know, there was um, a lot of shaking going on in the vehicle and they couldn't hear and that kind of thing. And so sometimes we had the pre-recorded voices of the people that weren't physically there because they were still overseas. And so I had to spin that in with Pro Tools and mix that into the actors so the actors could talk. They also had little um, they had hidden microphones and they could talk to each other at distances so they didn't have to yell. As a, as a normal communication system. So we designed the whole thing. It was very much like Fury Road, really, but, but um, it was a bit more complex than that. And then, again, Ridley Scott wanted to be able to talk to them because it, we would have been three, four, five hundred metres away from them sometimes and they were kind of on water or up right up on a cliff or um, in distances in the forest and that kind of thing. So, And then he would cue them with whatever they wanted. The other one was where um, they were in corridors of the vehicle or of the um, the hero uh, spaceship and they were running and they were fearing um, something chasing them and there were alarms going on. So Ridley would, at any call, come up with, oh, give me some alarm sounds. I want When we do this scene, I want some alarms and I want... Uh, I want it to go in their ears so they can actually feel fear, um, get an inspiration of, of what it would feel like. And um, so we did that. We, we sourced some stuff from the designer in, in London. <laughs> he emailed some stuff to us and I looked up some stuff and we had our editors and it was pretty chaotic kind of experience, but it was great. And then uh, there were times where he wanted the sound of the um, of the alien where it was a neomorph which was like a a small version you know it was the baby version of of the big alien um, he wanted that sound and the alien sound separate 
and uh, be able to feed that either through speakers or, or headphones and, uh, you know, motivate them. There were scenes like um, the captain was um, lying on her bed in her room and there was, there's um, a graphic of um, like a big video screen of a bush scene somewhere. And, um, you know, instead of just doing it normally, he, he would say, Ben, play me some, some atmospheres of, you know, cuckoo birds or something. <laughs> This is like five minutes before you're about to shoot. You right. know? So I'm yeah. kind of going, oh, God. And, um, and um, Shanti would look up on her mobile phone, you know, and we'd download stuff and, and play it or like ringing the editors again, oh, he wants this. And, <laughs> and they would give me their versions. And I found something that I had on my laptop that I'd recorded in the bush in Tasmania, you know, at night. So that... that um, was what he went with and what she heard and put a little earpiece in her ear. So what's Ridley Scott like to work with as a director? He was amazing. Yeah, he's, he's very, um, uh, a very gifted artist as well because he started off as a production designer apparently. So he would, when he's uh, talking about the scene that's coming up, even though we've had it boarded, he might have other ideas and he'd get a sketch pad and... and draw in front of half a dozen people and this is kind of what I want you know and and he'd be queuing the the dis, the production designer to build something or um, you only need to build it this big because I could CGI the rest of it and that kind of thing it was just spur of the moment stuff it was amazing and he could um, with his DP a direct four or five cameras no worries just just as if it was a walk in the park it was amazing and um, it all looked absolutely brilliant a um, bit of a frightening film, I have to say, you know. but uh, it was interesting to work on. The other, the other thing we did was also, which I do on a lot of films, is if there's another conversation that happens on set and they're hearing as if it's a telephone conversation, I'd get, and if the actors were available, I'd get them on another room or we'd um, would make a little um, little booth for them and uh, give them some headphones and a, a microphone in front of them and um, and they would feed the lines. But I would also record them because they were the actor that was, um, that was supposed to be on the other side. So it gave a better performance for the actors on set. It's, um, you could see it oftentimes when somebody's just, um, and it's the easiest way is to get somebody off screen just behind the camera doing the feed lines, it's not the same. It doesn't doesn't look the same because when you when you're talking on the phone, you're not really looking at anything. You know, your your mind goes blank and uh, your your eyes go blank, but your mind mind becomes active. And uh, I think it's a physical response that actors love when they they can just hear the the sound in their ears, but the person isn't there because it could be a script uh, supervisor that's feeding the lines or an AD. You know. But if it's the the if if you have the luxury of having the real actor um, there, it um, it's a much better way of doing it. So you you think a lot about how to get the best vocal performance from the actors as yeah. well. Yeah, yeah, obvious, you know, physical and vocal. Yeah, definitely. That's what I'm there for. You know, to facilitate their performance, and that's that's the crucial thing. Even on Fury Road, where um, most of the dialogue was. 80 yard 
It was to get their performance to start with and, and have it audible enough for the editors to be able to make um, decisions on performance, of, then the director obviously, on performance from one take to another um, and then be able to g- get that take and put it together within the sequence and then ADR it. You know, that's, uh, that, that's what I was there for. You know, it, was, um, it was impossible to get you know, uh, 100% sound in, in those situations, but it was um, amazing that we actually got sound at all. You know, yeah. plus getting the the vehicle sounds was was great, and then of course the vehicle sounds were enhanced by I um, post production. You know, sourcing different sounds and adding to them and that kind of thing. So, um, I've I've heard from a number of people who work in sound in Australia that the Australian film industry is struggling a bit at the moment. It's really difficult to get assistance and budgets are shrinking and stuff. What's your experience been with that? And do you do anything to try and change that or help the Australian industry? Yeah, I've actually been involved with the union quite a bit. We've had a, a series of meetings with um, producers overseas to, you know, studios overseas to come to Australia. And we've come with a really good compromise to see... Um, and we lobbied the government to be able to to give us uh, overseas productions and local productions incentives to to make films with assistance. It's that's a really good thing because I've through the years, you know, actually growing up at the ABC, we always had a boom operator on dramas. We always had a boom operator and an assistant learning the the ropes. When I went freelance, it was. In those days, it was yeah. You, know, you only got a boomy. You haven't got a second. In those days, you could almost get away with it because there was only one camera. Nowadays, there's two or three cameras, and they can shoot in any direction. And so, therefore, now we're using a lot more radio mics. There's a lot of more people to to be listening to what you're doing and 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 doing um, things like playback at the same time as recording live and all those tools are there which are great but you need experienced staff to be able to manipulate all that stuff so unfortunately what's happening is that a lot of people might do it um, coming up in the industry it's they find that they get jobs in the, I, I don't seem to find enough people that are interested in in coming up through the ranks, if you like, in, um, in on feature films and drama. And t- television drama is a really good training ground because it's it's very fast and um, and you have to make very quick decisions. I wouldn't say they're the best decisions all the time, but they're they're compromises to make them. Um, to make the scenes work and then move on because their their budgets are tight. But I'm finding that a lot of young people tend to work on when they leave school or or, um, whatever training. It's easier now because technology is so um, readily available to buy a a cheap recorder and uh, cheap microphones and radio mics and then say I'm ready to record sound. Well, I, I think 
that there's a step after the film school that needs to be looked at, and that's paid attachments to not have the the pressure of being a, an assistant right away because the last few films I've done, I've, I've worked with two experienced boom operators each time. There's no room for an assistant because they're, they're not trained enough. Um, where it used to be um, the guy that's doing the main boom at the moment was an assistant with me for five years. And he was getting a reasonable rate. Um, but now he's, you know, he's a qualified boom operator and when he finishes with me, he goes off and records sound himself. But there, there seems to be a lack of, of people that are willing to come up with... And they haven't got the funds to be an assistant um, for too long. Um, so they find the easy way of, of working on reality shows or content programming and that kind of stuff. Unless you have a mentor that that you're looking towards emulating and then making your own decisions after that, I think it's um, it's a trap. And it, and and it's like um, you've learned the guitar for six months and then you'll go off, unless you're a genius, you'll go off and do the same thing all the time If you if and not, not notice anybody else in the world that's playing. You can't see anything else apart from what you're doing. You won't get any better. So what I'm trying to say is that that's the next plan is to try and get more education on set, on films, and uh, trying to get on the bigger films, we can get um, assistance. And uh, I'll give you a couple of examples. Is before, um, before Alien, I had a, an assistant who did, uh, I think he did a TAFE course, and he went straight out and started recording and, and booming for another young guy. And he approached me to do drama, and he came on board on commercials with me. Um, I had a boomy, but you know he would come and observe and and help out. Unfortunately, he wasn't being paid, but um, he was uh, he was working at you know um, Bunnings or something, and and he was able to take time off every time I had a commercial or a, a short sh- shoot. He could come and and uh, learn, and he was getting a lot out of it. Then um, he did that for about a year on and off, and, you know, obviously if he had a, a job that he could go booming somewhere, he'd, he'd take that and he'd come back. When I was asked to do Hacksaw Ridge, unfortunately I, I fell ill, but I got him to come as an assistant, um, as a, an attachment, if you like. There were two qualified boomies on that job and the attachment. And then second unit came up and he got a job as an assistant on that. But after that, I, I got him on um, Alien Covenant as an assistant. And the boomy that worked on that um, liked him a lot. And now he's been working with her for the last two years nonstop. You know, so it can happen. And now he's, he's getting to the stage where he can work on, on most productions quite comfortably. You know, he still has to learn a bit more about booming, but um, he's, he's a lot more comfortable on set and um, that kind of thing. It takes a little while, but what's, what we're finding is that the sound recorders that have got the experience like myself and David Lee and Guntus Six and um, Salty, there's not many of us that are coming through the ranks like that. 
because we had training at uh, in those days at the ABC. There were like twenty something crews, and you could go. I could go, and that was my my education. I could go to a senior sound person and say, "Look, I've got this job coming up that." Um, I'm a bit confused about how I should be doing it. And he would give me his opinion. Then I'd go to another person and say, well, what do you think? And and he would give his his clues on how to come about it. And um, a third one, if he was around, you know. So um, I would come with that information on set and already be half ready of how to approach it. And when the, the situation ca- came, then I could come up with with alternatives you know so yeah i think it's it's great to have and it's invaluable to have education in uh, film school but i think it's even more valuable to continue that education on on set and that's a roundabout way of saying that yes the the schedules are getting a lot tighter in australian films but um american films are still quite big or you know British ones they they can um, they've got the budgets to to do it properly and that's what we're, tr- we're trying to get assistants to come as um, interns you know and they get some sort of salary but that's what's a lot of um, sound recorders that are my generation have come from TV with no budget and so we've learned how to 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 make films in in a ref, um, concentrated way with less crews, etc., etc. Thanks again, Ben, for coming on the show. Thanks to Jean-David Legoulon for the sound design and intro music. Uh, thanks to the Australian Film, Television and Radio School. Uh, for more updates and the fun kind of social media promotion stuff that podcasts are meant to do, Follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Sound Perspective or Twitter at Sound Perspect. And make sure you join us next episode for the individual episode with George Miller. Uh, Yes, you'll be able to hear the entire interview with Mr. Miller. Uh, We'll be eventually rolling out all of the interviews we conducted for episode one. Um, And now to wrap it up, here's one of Ben's original tracks. Uh, I believe it was written in Namibia, uh, while they were shooting Fury Road there. Uh, I'll drop the link to his SoundCloud in the podcast description. Hope you enjoy. Swakamon Surrounded by sin Staring at horizons In this never-ending land Cultures interweave In the hands of tradition Some stitches undone Living in Namibia Cold Atlantic current Meet earth hot, dry and unforgiven Mesmerizing vistas From everywhere you're living Yes, wind warms you 
Send storms to the sky Scuff up to your eyes Oh, I'll be missing Living in Namibia Desert mist rolls in Church bells start to ring Monday see you poor But your people love to sing Oh, humble to be among you Oh, I'll be missing Living in Namibia Walking round the market Wondering what I want Missing home and the ones I love But marimba music's all I hear Colored costumes, dance and cheer Humble to be among ya Oh, I'm missing Living in Namibia Rolls in Church bells start to ring Monday say you're poor But you love to sing Oh, humble to be among you Oh, I'm missing Yeah, oh, I am missing Living in a movie